What do you think of when you hear the word Christianity? Or what do you suppose other people think of, let's say in, in the secular world, when they hear the word Christianity? Any ideas? Okay, churchgoers. That was a nice way of putting it. There's lots. Yeah, one of those. One of those people. Okay, let you know fanatics, or uh, these people are judgmental uh, by nature, or they're hypocritical, or old-fashioned, too involved in politics. All sorts of things come to mind when people think of the word Christianity. Well, a crucial point to that we must understand when studying Christianity is not that it's based on a philosophical system like Buddhism. It's not set based on a set of moral code like the Islamic system. It's not, um, it's not based on anything, any sorts of rituals like a lot of other uh, churches in Christendom practice. Christianity, as its name implies, is based on whom? On Christ. On Jesus Christ. So, we need to find out about Jesus Christ. We need to learn about Jesus Christ. So, in order to do that, how do we learn about Jesus? There's lots of ways we could do that. We could go to the library and look up the word Jesus. But I would uh, think that we would find multiple volumes on Jesus and they'd be such, there would be such a wide variety of resources with that name on it that it probably wouldn't be very helpful. We could go to a Christian bookstore and that would narrow down our search, but even still, it, it still wouldn't help us because those are basically interpretations of what they think about Jesus. When we want to study someone who is a historical figure, where should we go, whether it's Jesus or anyone else? Where, where's the best place to go to find out about a historical figure? Any historians in here? Google. <laughs> Google, yeah. Library. Okay. Uh, the point is, we need to go back to the original sources. Okay, If you want to find out about George Washington, don't find out what people are saying about George Washington now. Go back to the people who studied George Washington, who, who were contemporaries of George Washington. And uh, so that's what we're going to do with this study here. We're going to study about Jesus Christ from a first-hand perspective, or a second-hand perspective, really, because we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark um, was a contemporary of Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, and so he had a good understanding of who Jesus was, and he wrote a biography on Jesus Christ. He calls it the Gospel of Mark. So let's turn there to Mark chapter 1. And what we're going to do, you see on the back of your sheet there, uh, we're going to go over the next six weeks. We're going to study, uh, just do a brief study through the book of Mark. And we're, we're going to study these six topics. First of all, this week we're going to study Jesus, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? And then we're going to see that He is Jesus, the crucified and then the resurrected. Those are the three main components that we must understand in order to understand the Gospel. And then, if we want to accept the Gospel, then we need to do it, uh, and we have to have an understanding of these next three things, which are salvation by grace, not works, and that we need to do it through repentance, week 5, and through faith, week 6. So, Mark chapter 
1. Our study this morning will look at who Jesus is and show that He had great authority. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who knows what Gospel means? Good news. Anyone else need a handout? Good news. So when when Mark I think when Mark is talking about the gospel, when he says the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. He's saying that um, I am going to write to you about the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What do you think that title means? The Son of God. Okay? He is a direct descendant from God. Okay, this isn't a trick question. He is He is the Son of God. He is a, a child of God, but it's a lot different than in the sense that we are children of God. Okay, when we become a Christian, we become children of God. But we're not the same. Uh, we're not a son of God like like uh, Jesus Christ is. Turn to John chapter five because I want to show you that this means a lot more than just that he is God's child. John chapter five and verse eighteen. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father. Notice, making Himself equal with God. You see, when we call ourselves children of God, we are not making ourselves equal with God. We are in no way uh, like deity in that sense. We are like God. We take on some of His characteristics, but we are not God like Jesus Christ is. But see what the Jews were saying here? He was calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God. Now, the reason that He does this, I think in order to understand that, is that there's a couple things that we need to understand. First of all, when we think of the term Son in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole, it really refers to having the characteristics of. Okay, so if we had... Um, Joshua, the son of Nun, he he had the characteristics of his father Nun. Um, in the situation with uh, John, James and John, remember what they were called? They were called the sons of whom? Sons of thum- thunder. Yeah, they were the sons of Zebedee. But the sons of thunder is what Jesus called them. Does that mean that that their dad was thunder? That he came from the clouds and made loud noise? No. What did that mean? It means that he takes on the characteristics of these two bo- these two men take on the characteristics of thunder. So so it has more of a meaning than just that I take on a uh, uh, that I that I uh, descend from him. It actually means that he has the characteristics of. So when Jesus is called the Son of God, he really is uh, in essence God, and. In order to understand that a little bit better, I think we need to understand what the Jews were thinking when they when they saw that Jesus was calling himself um, a child of the Father. You see, because most of the time when the Jews would refer to the Father God, they would they would call him our Father. Okay, remember the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter six. 
our Father who art in heaven is the normal way that the Jews refer to Him. But Jesus was actually saying, My Father. He was calling Him His own Father. And so the Jews were saying, You are saying that you are equal with God. And that is blasphemous because no one is equal with God is what the Jews were saying. But obviously, He could be equal with God because He was God. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at Mark chapter 1. And we want to see the first way in which Jesus was an authority. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Verse 21 says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed and so that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Immediately the news about Him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. From this passage we see that Christ's authority is reflected in His teaching. Jesus, Jesus has authority as a teacher. Jesus has authority as a teacher. Verse 22 reads that the people were amazed at His teaching because He taught as one with authority. In those days, it was common for Jewish rabbis to, to speak on the authority of someone else. And so they would do like we do in our papers uh, when we write uh, scholarly papers. We, we footnote them. We give credit to the, to the author. And really, it's not, a, it's not a really good scholarly paper unless you have resources. Okay, if I just wrote a paper on what I thought, my professors would just you know, cross that out and just rip it up and throw it in the trash because that, that doesn't mean anything. You have to go back to sources. What are you basing this on? And that's the way the Jewish rabbis would teach in that day. They would use resources, and wisely so. But Jesus was not using any resources. He wasn't saying, I'm doing this based on what Rabbi whomever says. I'm not doing this based on what people of old have said. I am doing this because of what I am saying. He said, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You remember these phrases in Matthew chapter 5? And uh, so Jesus was speaking on a greater authority than these religious leaders. He had a depth of knowledge and insight that left his hearers amazed. And so the logical question that his hearers were asking and that we should ask of him is, if this authority did not come from the religious leaders or from historical figures, where did it come from? And how should we respond to that sort of teaching? You see, Jesus has authority as a teacher. But not only that, Jesus has authority over evil spirits. And we see this in the same passage. Um, we see that Jesus has authority over these evil spirits. And He does this by performing miracles. A man comes in possessed by a demon, and Jesus says, come out of him. Now, the, the Gospels record various accounts of miracles. And um, the primary reason for Jesus' miracles was not so that he could gain a following or so that 
he could, you know, be like the people who who apparently are performing miracles today, that some sort of uh, great figure, popular type guy. That wasn't the point of it. The point of his miracles were to authenticate his teaching. We'll see this in a little bit when we look at Matthew chapter 2. But it was to authenticate his teaching, to show that, hey, listen, you will not believe what I say, so let me show you this. Okay, I have authority from God. And uh, so that's what his uh, miracles were designed to do. They were designed to validate his authority. And it ultimately revealed that he was the divine character, the Son of God, God Himself. And notice in verse 24 the response by the evil spirit. Verse 24 says, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice that the evil spirit recognizes Jesus by name, and he accurately refers to Him as the Holy One of God. Isn't it amazing that the people whom Jesus is speaking to in His day, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came unto His own, and yet His own did not receive Him. They did not recognize that Jesus Christ was God Himself, and yet these demons even recognized that. And the great part about the Gospel is that even though He came unto His own, John 1.11, and His own did not receive Him, the very next verse, John 1.12, but as many as received Him, you and me, if we receive Jesus Christ, then He will be our Savior, even though His own rejected Him. They did not know Him. We can accept Him even though we are not, we were not of His own. We were not Jews by, by ethnicity. So why such a reaction from the demons? Why call Him the, the Holy One of God? Now, these demonic spirits were clearly exhibiting power over people, but they recognized that their power was much lower, much less than what Jesus Christ's power was meaning they were powerless in the face of Jesus. They could do nothing in His, uh, in His presence. And so they recognized Him as the Holy One of God. And we, we see these, these uh, spirits speaking to Jesus in other cases. You remember when the, the legion of demons was in the one man and they actually asked, please, you know, don't send us away. Just send, you know, don't... Uh, don't send us back down to the pit. Send us into these these uh, herd of swine. Let's look next at the um, at Mark chapter two verses one through twelve. So I want to show you Jesus Jesus's authority in another area, actually two areas. Okay, let's look at chapter two verse one. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carrying, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in His Spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. In this passage, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. This is remarkable for Him to say this. He says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. But to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand what sin is. You see, Mark's original audience knew what sin was. But in today's culture, we, we don't really understand sin as well. If you just go up to somebody on the street, they may not know what sin is. So what exactly is sin? Can someone define sin for us? Mark? Okay. Transgression of God's law. Disobeying God's law. It's a, sin is basically an attitude of rebellion either in thought in word or in deed, in action. Okay, sin can be expressed in several different ways. It's, it's mainly expressed in our rebellion against God. It means that we are not doing something that God told us to do or we are doing something that God told us not to do. That's as simply as it can be stated. Now, God hates sin and we're all sinners, which is true, but, but why does... Christianity consider that sin is such a serious problem? Well, sin is a problem because the Bible is clear that God punishes all sin. And at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, we read how Adam chose his own way instead of the Lord's way by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, and so our loving, caring, and just God, He must hate and punish sin. Because God is good, He cannot love evil. Okay, Because God is holy, He hates sin. And so He must punish sin. So on the one hand, that should give us comfort because you know we live in a world of sin and, and it's a good thing that God does punish sin because what would happen if sin were not punished in this world? How bad could our world possibly be? You say, I don't know. It can't be much worse than it is now. But yes, it actually could be worse. And yet, at the same time, God's hatred and punishment of sin should create a great discomfort inside of us. Because we understand that our sins will stand in judgment um, underneath God's wrath. That God hates sin and that He must punish it. And so, as a result of His holiness, he, He has to punish it. And so, for Jesus to say that I can put away the wrath that God has on you. I can forgive you of your sins. I can make a right stand, make you stand rightly before God. It's a pretty bold statement for a human to make. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 there. It says, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How do the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus' claim to forgive sins? How did they respond? 
Right. Right. And the, yeah, they they understand that 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 only God can forgive sins. And so if someone says that they can forgive sins, I mean anybody can say that, really. I mean, we have people like this in all sorts of different uh churches around the world that say that they can forgive sins. And who's going to check them on it, right? So you can imagine what the Jewish leaders are thinking. In their heart, they're thinking anybody can say that. You know, I I can say that. I can say that that uh, this person's forgiven of their sins. And so Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, they never even said this to each other. They're just thinking this in their heart. Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says to them, why are you thinking that in your heart? In order for you to believe, I want to do something greater, well, what you would think is greater than forgiving sins. What's interesting here is that these people that bring this paralytic man come to Jesus with a specific problem. They come to Him thinking that His problem was that He needed to be healed. But what's interesting is that Jesus knew what His greatest problem was, didn't He? You have a bigger problem than that you're lame. Your problem is that you don't believe in God. And so Jesus shows them and that's the next thing that we see is that Jesus has authority over sickness. We see Jesus' authority over sickness. So by saying that Jesus can forgive sin, He is basically saying that I am God. I am God. And in order to prove that, in order to validate it, this is what I was talking about earlier about miracles, in order to validate that I can forgive sins, I'm going to show you this miracle. Take up your pallet and walk. And this is what he does now. He he uh, has authority over sick, sickness. And the proof that he offers, obviously, is by healing, is uh, by healing this paralytic. He recognizes that people fully don't understand what it means to have authority to forgive sins, and so he proves it by a miracle. Now, how does that miracle prove that he can forgive sin? You see, we can't see that that man's sin was forgiven, but we can see that that person gets up and walks. And that's because we often walk by sight rather than by faith. And so Jesus was saying basically, listen, I'll give you something that will appease your sight. I'm going to allow this man to stand up and walk. But ultimately what that shows is that I both have the power to heal um, physical condition and I have the power to heal a spiritual condition, which is much more important. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't use the ordinary methods that a person would use to heal somebody like this. Normally, if you go to a doctor, you wouldn't expect the doctor to diagnose your problem and say, you're healed, go. And you'd be like, no, I want my money back. You didn't do anything to me. You got to do some test or cut me open or something. You got to do something. You can't just. But Jesus, what did he do? Look at verse 11. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick your, up your pallet, and go home. What did he use? What was the method that he used to heal this man? Command or his word. God, he, he simply used his word. Now, we do have cases in other parts of Scripture where Jesus you know, takes mud and puts it on the eyes and things like that. But, but it's amazing that Jesus can heal simply with His words. 
We should not be surprised by this, however, because God did this in Genesis chapter 1 when He created the universe. He did it with His Word. He said, let there be light. He didn't take a little bit of a lump of uh, molecules and, and then form it and go, no, that doesn't work. Let me try something else. No, He just said, He spoke and it happened. See, Jesus proves that He is God. He proves that He has authority by being able to forgive the sins, but also by healing through His voice, simply by speaking. Jesus has authority over sickness. And Jesus shows us that even when we come to Him with what we think is our deepest need, in this, this man's case, I need to be healed. I need to get up and walk. Jesus shows us that He knows what our deepest need is. And so we can trust Him that when we come to Him and we ask for Him to relieve us of some problem, relieve us of some physical condition, that because He is God, He doesn't have to prove anything to you. He wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for God's plan. And so, even though we come to Him with certain problems and and frustrations, He responds often in ways that we don't even imagine. And those of you who who have been saved as a result of some sort of affirmity or some sort of physical problem or some sort of difficult circumstance, you understand this. Why would God put this difficult circumstance into my life? We come to Him and ask Him to take it away, and yet He's using that very thing to point Him, point us to Himself. And He continues to do that even as we follow Him as believers. So Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over nature and death. Turn to Mark chapter 4. We want to see Jesus' authority over nature and death. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark four thirty-five. On that day, when evening came, He said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they, that is the disciples and Jesus, took Him along with them in the boat, just as He was, and other boats were with Him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus Himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it came; it became perfectly calm. And He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him. Turn to chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around Him, and so He stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Darius came up and on seeing Him fell at His feet and implored Him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And then look down at verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? 
But Jesus, overhearing that what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that, that something should be given her to eat. Now, already we can see the authority that Jesus claims as a Son of God. It's not mere human authority. It's the kind of, of, of authority that only God can wield. And this is dramatically demonstrated in these two passages. We see that Jesus has authority over nature and over death. So, after teaching in Capernaum, He and His disciples are caught in a terrible storm. And so, the disciples, fearing that they're all going to die, they go and wake up Jesus. And what's interesting again is that Jesus does not use some sort of method where he, he goes out and lays on the water or something. What does He use to calm the storm? He uses simply His voice. And those of you who know about um, being out on the water and things, you know that after a storm, when the wind dies down, the waves usually don't, do they? They usually either remain the same or actually pick up. And what's amazing here is that Jesus calms the storm. He stops the wind. But He also stills the sea so that the waves are completely still. You see, Jesus has power over humans. Jesus has power over sins. Jesus has power even over inanimate objects like the wind and the waves. And that shows that that Jesus' authority is not simply something that is derived from Him as a human being. It is derived from Him as God. And uh, there's all sorts of examples in the New Testament about Jesus' um, ability to do these sorts of things. You think of the feeding of the 5,000 and so on. But the point is that Jesus has power over nature. He also has power over death. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus also has this dominion over death. We find about, we read about this uh, this man, Jairus, who had a sick daughter. And uh, Jesus does the same sort of thing. Instead of going in there and doing some sort of method to to try to to bring her back to life, to resuscitate her, He simply simply speaks. Little child, little, little girl, get up and walk. Simply by the word of His mouth. This is a authority that only God can have. Okay? There's no one else who can raise from the dead than God Himself. Now, maybe in your mind you're thinking, okay, what about Elijah? What about all these other people? Well, Elijah might have prayed for that, but Elijah wasn't the actual agent who caused that child to be raised from the dead. And no one else in Scripture has ever raised anyone from the dead save God Himself. And the Jews understand this very, understood this very clearly. They knew from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, that only God can raise the dead. And so for for him to go into this room 
they were probably a little bit skeptical. Okay, what are you doing in there? Why close the door? Why only take these three people? Why not do this out in the open? And uh, we'll talk more about that in the Sunday, ser- the, the morning service. But Jesus has power over death. So this picture, this is the thing that we've painted so far, that Jesus is the Son of God. He has power over creation. He has power over humans, over their spiritual well-being. And that is because Jesus is God. Now let's look at um, Jesus' authority over people. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Jesus has authority <clears throat> over people. Notice the immediacy of, 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 uh, of their action. They immediately got up and followed him. Now, in a day with a lot higher unemployment rates than we had, it's amazing to think that they would be willing to give up their job and their family just to, to go and follow Jesus this man whom they had just met. But do you know what that does for us? That shows us Christ's power, doesn't it? That, again, He uses His voice. And all He does is speaks and says, come, follow Me. And they follow. They leave it all aside. From a human perspective, we're thinking, you guys are crazy. I mean, you're not going to have a place to sleep. You're going to end up in death. Shouldn't you count the cost? Shouldn't you think ahead about what's going to happen? But you see, when Jesus calls somebody, they respond. When Jesus gives life to a dead body, it responds. And so Jesus is amazing in His authority that, that, um, that in His calling of these people, they respond. He has, a, he has authority over people. So we need to recognize as well as these just as these disciples did, that submitting to Jesus' authority isn't simply to acknowledge Him as a Son of God. Because even the evil spirits did that, didn't they? You are the Holy One of God. They recognized that He was the Son of God. Instead, we need to recognize, we need to acknowledge that God, that Jesus Christ is God and that we will give our entire lives to Him. That whatever it takes, whatever He wants, it's His. That we're willing to follow Him and obey Him no matter where He leads us. And so to summarize what we've learned, we've learned that Jesus has great authority. He has authority as a teacher over sickness, over nature, evil spirits, and, and over death. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority over people. He has authority over people like you and me. Not just people back in the, in the Bible times. He is the supreme master in God's world. And secondly, we see that He claims to be divine. He claims that He is the Son of God. That He is God. And His divinity is validated by His miracles. 
And then thirdly, just like the four men that we considered in our last passage, we have a response to make. We must make a decision to follow Him. And this is an ongoing response. You, it's not just something, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll follow you once, once you save me. No, we've got to continually, actively think about following Christ because our nature is to, to reject Him, to reject what He wants for us. And so what are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, many times you may ask, who is Jesus? You could ask someone out in the street, who is Jesus? And their response may be that, oh, he was a good teacher, or he's a great example, good person to follow after, good person to, to good model for us to follow. But I think uh, what C.S. Lewis does here, I think, is very helpful. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. I mean, even the Jewish leaders couldn't say what Jesus said. He was saying, I have power to forgive sins. I am the Son of God. I am God. Even the Jewish leaders didn't do that. So he wouldn't be a moral teacher. We can't just call him the moral teacher. There's only three choices. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that, hey, I'm a poached egg. This is C.S. Lewis writing. Or else he could be the devil of hell. I mean, obviously the Antichrist will say, hey, I am God. I am the Christ. But... C.S. Lewis goes on to say, you must make the choice. And this is where your quote comes in on your, on your sheet there. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So there's five responses that we can have to this Jesus. We can ignore Jesus by simply not thinking about Him or just saying, who cares about what you have to say, what the Scriptures have to say. We could claim that He never existed despite that we have historical evidence in the Scriptures that He did. Or, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, we can reject him as a liar. He's not telling the truth because whatever he said cannot be true. We can reject him as a liar. We can dismiss him as a lunatic. He's just a crazy man. I mean, he thinks he's something that he's not. Or, we can accept him and serve him as Lord. Those are the only choices. Those are the five options that, that... are in response to that question, who is this Jesus? So, if I could put it simply, I would say, will you follow Jesus or not? Will you accept His claim to be God, to have authority over all things? Or will you reject Him as a liar, as a lunatic, or will you simply dismiss Him or discredit Him? So, This is uh, the first step that I think we need to understand if we want to understand the gospel. Okay, if we think about it like a three-legged stool, okay, all three legs are necessary in order to hold that stool up. Okay, we could think of that stool as salvation. This first leg is that Jesus is the Son of God. 
the next leg that we'll see is that Jesus is the crucified. Okay, and then and then uh, two weeks from now, Jesus is the resurrected. When we understand those three as a whole, then we'll be able to respond in weeks four, five, and six with the understanding that salvation is by grace and that we should respond in repentance and faith. Okay, you have an assignment there for next week. And that is to read Mark chapters 1 through 5. Very exciting read, by the way. Very easy to read. You get to see the, the, the life and, and Mark just goes right into Jesus' miracles. It's very exciting. So I would recommend that you do that. I think that would be a good help to you as we study Jesus the Crucified. I hope this has been a help to you. Any questions before we are dismissed?